Remember the good old days before Microsoft Word had autosave? You'd type up some important document and then your computer would freeze and you'd lose hours of work just because you forgot to hit save? Well, that's what it's like going online without ExpressVPN. Every time you're connected to an unencrypted network, whether it's in an airport, a hotel, a cafe, or anywhere, your online data is not secure. Any person on that same network who knows what they're doing can gain access to your personal data. Bank logins, credit card details, passwords, all the stuff you don't want people seeing. Unfortunately, hacking has become much easier than it used to be. People don't even have to be exceptionally skilled to do it, and there's a lot of money to be made by selling your information on the dark web. ExpressVPN stops hackers from stealing your data by creating a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet. It's incredibly easy to use. Once the app is running, you literally click one button to get protected. And it works on your phone, laptop, tablet, and more, so you can stay protected on the go. I've been using ExpressVPN for a little while now, and I can rest easy knowing my info is safe and secure. I've heard horror stories of people who've been hacked, and it sounds like a massive pain to try to get any resolution in the aftermath, so I am not interested in finding out what that process is like. Secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N dot com slash slashfilm, and you can get an extra three months free. expressvpn.com slash slashfilm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, December 4th, 2018. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the latest film and TV news, and I'll play clips from my interview from the set of Captain Marvel with star Brie Larson. This is Slash Film Editor-in-Chief Peter Soretta, and joining me on today's podcast is Slash Film Managing Editor Jacob Paul. Hello, hello. And Senior Writer Ben Pearson. Hey, what's going on? Okay, guys, we've we got a, a bunch of stuff to get to, so we should just uh, get to it. Uh, let's start off with Netflix. Uh, yesterday, they announced that uh, The Christmas Chronicles, the film starring Kurt Russell, was watched by 20 million people, which they claim is uh, the equivalent of a $200 million opening week box office. Jacob, is that correct? Uh, Netflix is patting themselves in the back a little a little incorrectly here. Uh, yes, it, it is impressive that 20 million people watch Christmas Chronicles. There's no doubt about that. Um, that is an, an enormous amount of people. That's an incredible number. And Netflix, who is usually very shy about their numbers, actually is oh, good for them. Well, good for them. Pat themselves, pat themselves on the back. Release the press release, you know, saying that. That is all well and good. However, I do think it's a little disingenuous to say Christmas Chronicles would have been a $200 million opening weekend movie. Because Christmas Chronicles... As we discussed in the show yesterday, for those of you who didn't hear, uh, it's not that great of a movie. And if you had put that thing in theaters, put it in three thousand theaters, there's no way it would have made. <laughs> there's no way it would have made two hundred million dollars. I mean, it's a family movie for sure. Uh, but once is Christmas Chronicles the movie that you leave your house and get dressed and bundled up for winter weather and spend you know fifty dollars in popcorn for you and the for you and the kids. It's it's not the kind of movie that's gonna that's gonna be an event in theaters. It's the kind of movie that you put on while you decorate the Christmas tree and while you wrap gifts and while you're just trying to stay home and stay warm in the Christmas season while you and the kids or the family members all, you know, hang out and watch it. So yeah, Christmas Chronicles being seen by I mean people is incredible and that's and that's great for Kurt Russell. It's great for Netflix. It's great for everybody who made this movie. Uh but I'm just not convinced that Netflix saying this would have been a $200 million movie uh, is accurate. I mean, it's, it's the same way how video game developers and publishers brag about their game making $600 million this opening weekend and it's not never mentioning the games cost $60 instead of $15 for a movie ticket. 
But what do you guys think? Is the, is this as impressive as Netflix says it is, or, or or we should be talking about this conversation in a different way? I mean, I think Netflix has uh, theatrical envy. Like there is this whole competition between the exhibitors and streaming. And uh, I think they're also trying to, you know, get a deal done where they can do day and date in theaters and they're trying to show, you know, exhibitors that there is a market for this. Um, Would those 20 million people have paid $15 a ticket to see, uh, you know, that movie in theaters? No. Um, You know, uh, (laughs) the millions and millions of people that read Slash Film every day, would those people go to a newsstand and pay five bucks every day to to read it in physical form? I am under the belief that that probably would not happen. Um, (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Like, it's the ease of use. The more barriers you put up, the the harder it becomes. Uh, You know, Netflix does cost money. These are paying customers in a way, but they're paying for a lot more than just Christmas Chronicles. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it is a little bit ingenuous, but, uh, it, um, I don't know. I think it's impressive. Nonetheless, 20 million people goes to show you that we're probably gonna get a lot more of these holiday, like almost Hallmark channel movies in the future on Netflix. Yeah. There's a story we did not run, uh, broke a few days ago where the, uh, head of programming for Hallmark had an interview where he pretty much said, yeah, we're not worried about Netflix making holiday movies, but the, the fact that the interview existed in the first place suggests that Hallmark <laughs> is worried about Netflix getting in on their turf. Yeah, I, I, I think they have something to worry about there. I, Netflix is conquering everything. They've conquered stand-up specials. They're doing magic specials now, now Hallmark movies, like, uh, you know, anime, animation. Like, what uh, documentaries, what have they not gotten into at this point? I guess porn? <laughs> Uh, Marvel superhero movies starring proper MCU actors. Yeah, yeah. I guess that, yeah. yeah. Um, but, I mean, they did buy their own comic company, and they're probably going to have comic book movies in, in it, shows. Very true. So, they uh, also have Bright. They also have Bright. They, 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 they've entered the bad blockbuster area, too. So, um, You know, while we're on Netflix, we should talk about Friends, because there was this big stir yesterday as news hit the web that Friends was going to be taken off Netflix next year. And then we learned later that that wasn't happening at all. Jacob, what is going on here? Yeah, what happened was uh, an expiration date for Friends uh, popped up on Netflix for January 1st, 2019. And actually, the internet went crazy because Friends, is, despite having been over for over a decade, remains wildly popular. And when it, ent- on, when it entered the service in 2015, when Netflix bought it or bought the rights to stream it, it was a huge deal. Like all these lists and articles and editorials about Friends are popping up that year, and it was kind of crazy that once again Friends was in the limelight, and so people are still very much impacted by the show and it's gained a huge new following. Netflix paid thirty million dollars a year to keep it on the air for these past few years, and like I can speak from like from personal experience, my wife puts on Friends when she like is cleaning the house or when she's cooking or when she's hanging out when she's texting her sister uh, or recently putting up the Christmas tree, uh, wrapping Christmas gifts. It is just her comfort food. It's something that she is having access to. It means a lot to her. And today we, the update that I want to talk about is we learned that Netflix paid $100 million to Warner brothers, uh, to secure friends for one more year. But Jacob, uh, Netflix yeah. is creating all this original content. Why would they spend $100 million on this show that, you know, aired years ago, decades ago at this point? Yeah, I, I guess I guess I think it ended in what two thousand four, two thousand three. Yeah. Uh, but it, I think the easy answer here is that 
um, Netflix knows what's keeping people subscribed. They, they see the numbers that we don't. I mean, we, we don't know who's watching all the original shows if, if it's, you know, in the hundreds of thousands or millions, but, but surely millions of people are still streaming Friends. <laughs> and and, they, and they, they may be making their own sitcoms and their own comedy series, but Netflix does not have, like, a nostalgic favorite of their own. Like, nobody's nostalgic or excited to, like, this... No, nobody wants to bask in revisiting a Netflix show yet, but they want to bask in revisiting Friends because that show reminds them of a time, or reminds people of a time, you know, before Netflix, back when they can remember fondly, something they can half watch while they do other things. And Netflix does not make that kind of material because that kind of material has to age into existence. Yeah. There was this report back in April that suggested that 80% of Netflix's eyeballs were on licensed content. So that means four out of five people watching Netflix are watching things like Friends or The Office. Uh, I remember the Ankler reported that episode one, season one of The Office has been watched more than 80 million times on Netflix. Um, you know, I think these shows, it's what you're saying. You know, people want to revisit them. They're rewatchable because they're comedies. But also, they have many, many seasons. Like, the the biggest Netflix show, I think, is, is what? Like, uh, House of Cards, which has, like, a handful of seasons at this point? Yeah, I mean, there are some other animated shows that pump yeah. out, like, you know, two seasons a year. But that doesn't count. I mean, like, yeah, House of Cards or... um. Or Orange is the New Black, you know, have five or six seasons. Yeah. So that's it. The Office has 201 episodes, you know, nine seasons. That's pretty insane. Uh, so I think it's very telling that uh, Netflix is paying $100 million to For keep friends. For one year. And, and even then, Warner Brothers may um, even take friends after next year and add it to their new streaming service, which means that Netflix – is so desperate for one year of, of, of more friends that's shelling out, knowing they may lose it again. So that, that, that's an insane number. <laughs> ben, any thoughts on this? Uh, I was just thinking about, you know, one of the things that sort of ties into what Jacob said. Maybe one of the other reasons that people are really, you know, love revisiting Friends is because it's really one of the last huge sitcoms from the era before all of our entertainment became so splintered. And um, the idea that people can revisit this thing that everybody used to watch because back then there were only so many channels and, you know, it was, it was a show that was a part of the national conversation in a way that, you know, really only like HBO shows and huge, you know, like maybe stranger things is probably the biggest example of like a Netflix original that has sort of captured the zeitgeist in a, in a similar way. But, um, but yeah, I think that probably has a lot to do with it too. You know, it's just sort of this relic from a, a different era that people look back fondly on. Yeah, I know that if they, ever, if they ever put MASH on Netflix, I'll be binging MASH all day, every day. So I, I get it. I, it's, uh, I, I, Netflix, uh, as they lose more and more older things to other streaming services, I wonder like what's going to happen because I like watching my older shows. And my older shows are still on DVD, but the ease of streaming, you know, whoever offers me MASH first, the stream in full, I will go there and I will, I will pay them money. You know how I said uh, The Office has over 200 episodes? Um, I just looked this up. And House of Cards has 70-something episodes because, you know, Netflix has shorter seasons. So, like, that's a huge difference in content that can even be consumed. Um, anyways, I don't know where I'm going here, but uh, I just thought that figure was interesting. <laughs> um, let's move on to the Prince musical that was an, a, announced to be in the works. But this isn't a biopic. Uh, ben, tell us about it. 
Yeah, so the uh, 1984 rock musical Purple Rain was sort of like a, a loosely biographical uh, story of Prince's life. But now Universal Pictures has acquired the rights to several classic Prince songs, and they're developing an original movie that is not going to be a biopic, but instead is going to tell uh, like uh, a narrative using the songs to sort of string the narrative along and, and using those songs as connective tissue there. So uh, you know, I think the, the biggest comparison point would probably be something like Mamma Mia, which is another universal movie that, I mean, those, the two Mamma, Mamma Mia movies that exist right now have made over a billion dollars worldwide at the box office so far. So that's, I mean, it, there's clearly a, a template there for this to work um, we don't know. Well, well there's anything. also that um, Beatles uh, movie, Across the Universe. Right. Yep. That's which one was too, not and... as successful, but has a kind of cult following to it, I think. Right. Yeah. I think there's, there's really like two ways that you could go. You could have maybe three. You could have like an arty success, an art house success, something like Across the Universe. You could have like a mainstream pop success like Mamma Mia, or you could have something that tries to be a mainstream pop success, but sort of ends up failing. And I'm reminded a lot of uh, rock of ages, which is like a jukebox musical that tries to tell a brand new story that uses like 1980s hair metal songs <laughs> as, as that movie's connective tissue. And that was a Broadway production first. Um, but still that, that movie, I mean, <laughs> Tom Cruise sings and <laughs> you know, that movie has some, some sort of a uh, goofiness that I think, uh, you know, it, it has its charms, but it, it's certainly not like the financial success and, yeah. and even the creative success that, that some of these other projects are. So um, yeah, we, we don't know, you know, who's going to be involved with this. We just know that uh, universal basically won uh, the equivalent of a bidding war that the chairman of universal worked really hard to lock down these rights to the songs. And, um, yeah, we don't know anybody, you know, uh, who's going to be involved in terms of filmmakers and stuff like that yet. But uh, but yeah, fans of Prince's music should be um, maybe cautiously optimistic about this. It depends on the <laughs> approach, really. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, let's move on to Showtime's Halo series, uh, which has lost its director, Rupert Wyatt. Uh, Jacob, what is going on here? I hear that this might be in trouble. Uh, yes. Uh, earlier this year, uh, Showtime officially announced after literally years of rumors that they're making a Halo TV show based on the popular uh, Xbox, Microsoft uh, video game series. And they announced that Rupert Wyatt, the filmmaker behind Rise of the Planet of the Apes, the upcoming Captive State, was going to direct the pilot along with a few other episodes in the first season. And uh, just yesterday, we learned that uh, Rupert Wyatt has departed the show. And as usual, with every kind of departure, uh, the stated reason was uh, scheduling reasons. Uh, but there seems to be a little bit more of the story that uh, we have heard through the grapevine that the show is having some speed bumps. It is struggling. It is growing increasingly expensive, increasingly cumbersome, and Showtime is uh, getting cold feet. I mean, look at Game of, Game of Thrones is huge now in terms of like uh, budget and scope and scale. But it took almost a decade of you know fandom of building up this reliable fan base of people who were going to stick by it through thick or thin in order to justify those costs. Whereas Halo. Well, a well-known video game brand is still a video game brand and one that's seen better days. The the, the days of the original uh, Halo trilogy, the first three games, those are a decade in the past. I mean, the past few games have done well, but they have not grabbed the zeitgeist in the way that their first three did. And and if Halo, at the time of its uh, at the height of its powers, if they can churn through Peter Jackson, Gimbal Tutorial, Steven Spielberg, Neil Blomkamp, and not get made, 
uh, than, than trying to get it made now on the budget they're apparently facing. I'm not surprised, Rupert, why it's gone. Either either because of creative differences that they're that they're masking, or because they literally don't know what they're doing with this and they can't keep them on forever. Uh, but Peter, what do you think? Is a Halo a good fit for Showtime right now? I don't know. I, you know, all those names you mentioned are like amazing for this property. Uh, and, you know, in addition to those uh, filmmaker names, Alex Garland wrote the script to that movie. Uh, I think D.B. Weiss, uh, he's the showrunner of Game of Thrones, did a rewrite. Like, you know, they had insane talent involved and they couldn't get that off the ground as a movie. Uh, it seemed weird to me when it was announced as a show in time original series because you know usually my view of showtime original series is they seem like lower budget than you know the hbo kind of stuff and i you know Halo, you know i i i'm not a video gamer but i've watched uh my friends play a lot of halo and um it doesn't seem like something that can be done on the cheap like it really seems like that world that sci-fi world is going to take some serious money to get it to to look good and to, to yeah. work halo's story kind of stinks i mean the lore is interesting the basic you know building blocks it, it, there's potential uh but playing those games you don't play them for story you, you play them for the epic scale and for these massive gun battles and for going to these strange new worlds and blowing them up you know it's it is very much this intergalactic war story full of aliens and monsters and creatures and vehicles I, I cannot imagine this being anything, uh, you know, less than the most expensive TV show ever made. So I, I Rupert, with Rupert Wyatt, who's like a really experienced, you know, d- um, really, really um, reliable filmmaker, the kind of guy who you bring in, give him a script, and he says, yep, I can make this happen. He's, he's that kind of filmmaker. Um, if he can't get his head around it, and, 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 or if he's leaving for that reason, and not just scheduling reasons, and I think there's something really going on here. But then again, it yeah. could just be scheduling reasons. I could be overblowing yeah. this. I hope I'm not. I mean, I really, I really hope this comes together because you know what? I would love to see a Halo series done well. I'm not. I'm not sure if we need this. I, from my understanding, this show is going to star Master Chief, and like I feel like I know in the games, I get it. Master Chief looks cool, but there isn't much to him. Uh, we are Master Chief, and we, like, you know, there's a mystery to who's, uh, you know, underneath that armor and stuff. And I feel like for an Halo TV show to work, in my mind, and I, this is someone that doesn't play the game, so I could be totally from, you know, an, a knowledgeable standpoint here. But for my mind, like, Master Chief needs to be just a side character that kind of, like, comes in every, you know, episode, uh, you know, a little bit. that You're kind of, like, wonder, you know, he... What do you think, Jacob? Am I am I off base there? Oh, no, you're not. Uh, Master Chief is is you. It's, it's the game's our first person shooter. You are in his shoes. So there are all these intentional blanks left in the character that you fill in with your own experience, your own opinion, your own knowledge, because the game asks you to be this character. So even though Master Chief will apparently be the main character in this, which will probably involve him having to take off his helmet, which he never does in the games, <laughs> I think the best approach um, would be look to, look to, it's going to sound really silly, look to Happy Days. Look to the first season of Happy Days, where Richie Cunningham, the ordinary guy, um, was the main character, and off to the side was the cool Fonz, who would occasionally pop in for some advice and leave mysteriously. Everybody said, oh, that's Fonz. He's really cool. And in the early days of Happy Days, Fawn was special because he would only pop in and be this enigma for a few minutes. And then once they started, once they started leaning on the Fawns to be the main character of the show, it stopped being so special. So you know what? Master Chief needs to be early seasons of Happy Days to Fawns, not later seasons of Happy Days of the Fawns. I 100% agree here. Um, speaking of people under the mask, 
uh, Star Wars live action TV series for Disney Plus streaming service is uh, filming, and we're we're getting some rumors from the set of The Mandalorian uh, about what the basic plot is about. Uh, ben, what do we know? I would say that if you would like to go into The Mandalorian completely unspoiled, maybe fast forward a few minutes. Um, this this could be something that appears in a trailer for all we know, like the first teaser or something. We don't know. But uh, this, some, this seems to me like it's the like kind of selling point. Synopsis kind but of thing. yeah, it, it very well could. Be. I could be completely wrong. So skip ahead if you don't want to know anything. Yes. So uh, some leaks about The Mandalorian, which is the new Star Wars live action show. It's going to be on Disney Plus that Jon Favreau is creating, uh, have have sort of come on to Reddit recently. But Making Star Wars, which is a site that has a, a pretty good track record for Star Wars news, has confirmed one of the little snippets that has popped up on this, this Reddit leak, uh, saying that they have heard similar things from their own sources. So the Reddit post says... I guess the Mandalorian encounters a baby on one of his missions that he's supposed to kill, but instead of that, he ends up saving it, and a lot of the rest of the story revolves around their growing relationship and his efforts to keep the child safe and protected. So it's basically the the classic uh, hitman with a heart trope, and I actually looked this up, and it, it has a full tvtropes.org entry with <laughs> hitman with a heart, and you can see, like, you know, dozens and dozens of examples um, if you if you actually want to see how this has been used in film and TV and literature and all that stuff many, many times over the years. So um, I, I'm not sure that, I mean, this is certainly not new territory. Uh, this is pretty standard hitman story kind of stuff, um, also, apparently, the importance of that baby might have something to do with the rest of this story. Um, Making Star Wars points out that a previous rumor they heard said that the show would it was going to be uh, focusing on restoring the planet Mandalore. And exactly what that means, we're still not sure. But it is possible that this baby that the Mandalorian character is supposed to be protecting could be maybe the key to restoring the planet Mandalore. Um, so, you know, there, there's a lot of speculation to be had about that. But uh, but yeah, that's those are the, the little snippets of information about the show that have uh, come out recently that we know about. The, the important thing here is the baby is not Luke Skywalker. <laughs> because this <laughs> yes. movie takes or this show takes place much later in the timeline. Uh, Jacob, what, what do you think of this? Uh, this first synopsis this rumored leak. Uh, it sounds like exactly what I expect from a Star Wars TV show. Like as Ben says, it is very much a standard trope. But Star Wars has always been about dressing up these standard tropes in really exciting, fun packages. So you know, I'm all for seeing you know um, really cool looking Hitman protect a baby. Like you know what? If he straps a baby to his chest and like dual wields blasters while fighting yeah, aliens, exactly. Uh, bring it on, Mandalorian! Bring it on! I'm all, <laughs> I'm all about shows where 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 the, the masculine main character has to show a, a a tender paternal side and protect something innocent because that's what we need right now. So it's as basic and as overdone as this plot line is. Protect the baby, Star Wars. P protect them all. Yeah, I was just thinking about uh, Hard Boiled with Chow Yun-Fat. I mean, the, the <laughs> ending of that movie, like the final climax uh, gun you know, shootout is, uh, is basically what you just described. So if they were to do that, if they were to lean into sort of the ridiculousness of that visual, it could be really entertaining. So just because this is a tried and true trope doesn't mean that there's not some room to, uh, to turn this into something really cool. So I don't know. We'll have to see what they do with it. And Star Wars has this big history of drawing from, you know, Japanese influences. This is Lone Wolf and Cub. Is he going to Mandalorian? He's gonna raise his baby to be his like lethal sidekick. It's, it's, it's <laughs> this total. This is total Star Wars 101. Borrow from Japan. Borrow from Japan. Make it new. But yeah, so it, it makes total sense. 
Awesome. I love it. Uh, let's also talk about the other Disney Plus uh, Star Wars series. This is a Rogue One spinoff. Uh, we have now found out who is going to be the showrunner on the series. Jacob, tell us about it. Uh, the showrunner on the untitled Rogue One spinoff series will be Stephen Schiff, a writer and producer from FX's The Americans. And Peter, ages ago, on one of our very early podcasts, uh, we talked about our... Uh, our dream Star Wars uh, spinoff stories. Mine was uh, a Star Wars sto- story that was eight, uh, was like Army of Shadows, the French Resistance film from 1970s that presented um, the dark, you know, like really seedy, unpleasant side of being a rebel spy. We, we both kind of agreed it ne- it's never going to happen. But now here's Stephen Schiff, a guy who wrote and produced a show that's entirely about the mundanity of being a spy in 1980s America, <laughs> making a show about rebel spies. So I think my dream may be coming true here. The guy who made the Americans, which is obsessed with just the minutia of how of how how what it means to be a spy and how that job operates and how it breaks you and how it and how it makes you into a different person and how it forces you to make these tough decisions, is making a Cassie and Andor show. And Cassie and Andor, when we first meet him in Rogue One, is making really tough to- choices. Yet he's forced to murder an innocent man to protect himself. His, mo- his most compelling scene is the yeah. scene in the beginning of the movie, and we ne- we don't get much more of that. I hope we get more of that in this in the yes. show. So I want to see Stephen Schiff, the guy from the guy who worked on the Americans and one of the best spy shows ever made, tell us how how the rebellion made Cassie and Andor into that man. That is a this is a cool cool pairing of of writer and material. Yes, I'm also excited. I've I've only watched a couple episodes of The Americans. I I need to dive into that because that's like one of those shows that has a bunch of seasons, and I'm I've been told is is just fantastic. Yeah, it's over now, so you can binge the whole thing. You know. Yeah. Um, let's move on to our last story, and that is that Marvel Studios is making a Shang Chi movie. I didn't even know who Shang Chi was. I'm I'm not a huge Marvel fan. Like I, I only know like the the main Avengers ca- characters. That's usually what I read. Uh, ben, tell us about it. Yeah, I also had no idea who Shang Chi was, but uh, apparently uh, Marvel, you know, people, Kevin Feige and his team certainly have a good idea. So basically, what happens is Black Panther becomes the number three all-time box office domestic grossing movie. Uh, uh, for you know, in history earlier this year, and Marvel takes a look at that and says, Hmm, I wonder how we can do something similar and serve another uh, underserved audience. So that now they're basically looking to develop a Shang-Chi movie for uh, that is going to feature the studio's first Asian protagonist. So, Shang-Chi in the uh, comics is known as the master of kung fu. He is quick enough to dodge bullets, and eventually he gains the power to create an infinite number of duplicates of himself. Uh, this character became really, really popular in the 1970s, around the time when movies like Enter the Dragon and other martial arts films were sort of taking the world by storm. And according to Deadline, this movie is going to modernize the hero to avoid any stereotypes that many comic characters of that era were saddled with. Um, we know that Dave Callahan, who is a Chinese-American screenwriter, is going to write the script for this. And Marvel is actually having meetings and, and looking at uh, um, directors of Asian descent or Asian-American directors to tackle this movie, sort of in the hopes of following in the uh, success that Black Panther achieved earlier this year. Jacob, do you know any, any more about this character? Oh, goodness, no. This is actually kind of, kind of a really <laughs> deep cut for Marvel. Uh, and uh, Bob, I'm happy they're doing it. I, I remember the only thing I can remember off the top of my head is from the incredible uh, History of Marvel book. I'll pull a link to it in the show notes. Can't remember the title. Um, 
talked about how this character's earliest tales are kind of mired in some really really unpleasant um, white white guy racism from, from misunderstanding how to depict uh, East Asian cultures. But uh, fingers crossed that Marvel will do the do right by this because you know look at that Chinese box office. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. yeah, and and you know Marvel Studios has had uh, some issues with uh, representation in the past. I mean, like first of all, the less said about iron fist the better and that was to be fair that was marvel tv not marvel studios but in the movies and the marvel cinematic universe movies uh the studio sort of got some blowback for hiring tilda swinton to play the ancient one in doctor strange but i feel like iron man 3 and what they did with ben kingsley's interpretation of the mandarin in that movie is a really good example of a way that they were able to sort of sidestep those negative stereotypes and create a fun and interesting and fresh take on a character who, like um, Shang-Chi, was created in an era where it was really easy to get mired down in that kind of stuff. So, um, yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see what this looks like and who they end up going with and who ends up maybe directing it. And, and yeah, this, this could be a, a very big deal for Marvel. Oh, and that book is Marvel Comics, The Untold Story by Sean Howe. I've added the link to the show notes. It was a must read. Very cool. Uh, the Captain Marvel trailer hit uh, yesterday night uh, during football. You can watch that on SlashFilm.com. But I want to give a shout-out to HT, who did this article breaking down the trailer. So if you like to dive into the little details, uh, there, there's a bit of debate here. Of uh, um, Carol Dan- Danvers, it turns out, is uh, she's part Cree. Uh, but sh- you see her bleeding here, and uh, the Krees usually bleed a, a blue color, and this blood, some people think it's green. Some people think it's blue. What, what do you guys think? Have you have you seen the blood? It, it, it's blue blood with a greenish tint. I stand by it. I will not budge. I think it's green blood with a bluish tint. No, I, I really <laughs> don't know. I, I feel like we both were talking about this this morning. It really looks like a mixture of the two to me, so I'm... I would not be surprised if it's actually more clear in the real movie what color it really is, and Marvel just changed the color grading yeah. for that shot to get us to speculate about it now because they know that they can just feed the nerd beast and have us talk about this <laughs> stuff for a long time. Yeah. Well, some people are debating if she's part scroll. Is she really a Cree? Uh, there's a lot of interesting details in this breakdown. You should check it out on slashfilm.com. In May, I got to visit the set of Captain Marvel, which is shooting here in Los Angeles, and you'll be hearing about that more in the next couple months, but for now, we're allowed to play our interview with Brie Larson from the set, but before we get to that, uh, because uh, something uh, needs to be set up here, I'm going to play for you a little clip from our interview uh, with Samuel Jackson from set talking about Brie. What, what has been your impression of what uh, Brie has done with the role in terms of like the physical demands that it's entailed? This is you know new territory for her. Physical demands. Woo. Um, <laughs> let's see. I think about a year ago, Brie started working out, and the girl that I did Kong and Unicorn Store with is not this person. She's got she's like five percent body fat now. <laughs> and she used to send me workout videos, which were like crazy dope workout videos. But she was the first one she sent me. She was lifting. What was she lifting? Like 100 pounds. She was doing this thing with a waist lift, about 100 pounds. The last one she sent me was 350. <laughs> and you know, she does chin ups. <laughs> 
she sent me a video of her pushing a jeep up a hill. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, it's 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 pretty amazing stuff. So um, she's uh, she she's made a distinct transformation that you know I don't think a lot of people would be willing to do, and it's a huge commitment to do stuff like that. Uh, when I was doing uh, Tarzan with Alexander, um, well, he would come to work at like four in the morning and go work out, and then he would eat, and then he would do his cardio, and then we would start to shoot. And every time they said cut, somebody was putting a weight in his hand. Uh, he was doing curls, and he was doing push-ups. You know, Bree, Bree sort of like that, you know, at this point in her development that she can actually do all that stuff. I mean, it's kind of, kind of crazy. Let me see. Well, that's the cheat. Right now, Sam is pulling up a video Go. of Brie Larson Go. sent to him on his phone. Go. See, that's her pushing Go. the Jeep Go. up the hill. up another video. Aerosmith's Sweet Emotion playing in the background and Brie pushing up a weight that looks comically big, almost like one of those fake weights that you see in cartoons. And later on the set visit, we got to talk to Captain Marvel herself, Brie Larson. Uh, she was in between takes uh, on a very busy day. We got her for just a little bit of time. And uh, as she sat down, someone mentioned the clip that Sam had shown us. Here is our on-set interview with Brie Larson. <laughs> Oh my gosh. He showed those to you too? Yeah. Yeah. favorite thing. I can't believe it. I feel like I'm close to a hundred people that have come up to me and been like, I saw this video that you sent to him. I'm like, it's so embarrassing. I said that to him in private. He actually showed the person that was next to him on a plane too. Which I found out later. Like, oh, I sat next to Sam when you sent that video and he showed it to me. I was like, why? I think this is I know, I know. He knows like, that it was, I came from humble beginnings. Whose uh, idea was it for you to push a Jeep up a hill? <laughs> it was a joke. It was a, it was a joke with the trainer, with my trainer, um, Jason Walsh, that um, I wanted to be able to, like, we, we were joking about it that, like, well, you know, if I'm going to go for it, because I spent nine months training with him ahead of time, and I was getting super strong. I was like, well, she can, like, move planets, so the least I could do is, like, move a car. And so I thought it was going to be – I'm trying to remember how long we had trained together for, maybe five or six months at that point. And I just showed up in the gym one day, and he was like, all right, 
let's do it. And <laughs> I pushed the car, yeah. <laughs> and it wasn't as hard as I thought, which was kind of crazy. There was someone in the front seat in case for some reason. Like, the car's in neutral, but it's going uphill. Um, and I pushed it for a minute. Someone was in the car in case I, like, crapped out. And it, so it wouldn't, like, run me over. There was someone waiting there to put their foot on the brake. <laughs> <laughs> it does? Oh, because there was... Oh, it's more weight. I didn't even think about it like that. <laughs> totally didn't think about that. I was like, it's safe. Don't try it at home. Like, really don't. It's really probably not a safe thing to do. But it felt super satisfying. And I felt really crazy afterwards. Because when you do stuff like that... I'd never lifted weights or done things until this movie like that. And so you get these, like, crazy highs. And then you then you just kind of collapse onto the floor. Is there a particular sequence or something that required this much training, or is it just the personal goal of yours? No. <laughs> it really all came out of ignorance, to be honest. I didn't realize that you don't actually do your own. Most people don't do their own stunts in these movies. I thought you did, and I've never been a particularly like um, elegant or athletic person. Um, I'm just an introvert with asthma, and it felt like... I needed to be able to do that. I just thought, I don't want to be on set and them ask me to do things and I don't know how to do it. So um, I started training as soon as I could, which was like right after I wrapped. It's basically started like right as I wrapped picture, like locked picture on the film that I directed. I then went into that, which then turned into nine months of training um, and nine months of like just training, training and and three months of stunt training with the stunt team where we spent two hours um, every day, five days a week. Um, and it wasn't until we, everyone just like went along with it and was like, cool. And it wasn't until we like started shooting and I started doing all my own wire work stunts and flips and stuff that people were like, you know, nobody, now we'll tell you, like nobody actually does this. <laughs> we just didn't want you to stop. But now that, you've, now that you've kind of accomplished this thing, like we don't normally do this. And I was like, what? Um, but I love it. I mean, it definitely makes things um, more complicated in certain ways because I could be taking a lot more naps than I am. I could just be like, Renee and Joanna, got it. I'm going to go eat some cake. But instead, <laughs> it's really become a huge part of how I learned more about her and became her and embodied her was through that. It was through discovering my own strength. Like, a pretty amazing thing. What Can you tell us a little bit about her personality, especially in this scene? She was being, you know, a little sassy. Maybe has a little bit of an ego to her. Is that how you look at it? I mean, I think she has an ego, but in, like, a healthy way. She doesn't have an unrealistic expectation of herself. She just owns that she's really good and really skilled, um, which feels good to play. Um, she also has an incredible sense of humor, makes fun of herself, makes fun of other people, has no issue if someone makes fun of her. So... Um, I will say that like this character is probably the most dynamic character that I've ever played. Like there's the most range. Um, as of now, you'll see what the movie is, but as of now, it's been the most range I've ever played a character from, I've had to go through every emotion possible with her. Um, and a lot of this movie, although it has like great comedy in it, there's also like real depth to it and like emotion. Um, so I think that the film will have a lot which for me it's like that's what I want like I want to see complicated female characters I want to see myself which is like not a simple person like I'm surprised myself constantly by like what's happening and what's coming up so hopefully that's what comes out on screen how is it how has the part challenged you as an actress what are the things where you found yourself oh this is really testing testing my limits huh. 
Well, the general answer is just getting through a movie like this is a real challenge of everything, of mind, body, and spirit, because um, it's, it's a long one. Um, and because I added in the physical side to it, it's like, it's like a, doing like a triathlon or something. So there are some <laughs> days where I'm like, the fight sequence for three days, and then at the end of the third day, after I've like been punching and kicking and then it's like, okay, now we're going to do this one piece where you're like crying and it's emotional and you're like, whoa, this all feels, and it moves so fast and there's so much that at a certain point you just sort of have to trust your instincts and... Uh, Sorry, has it felt to be the lead character in the first female-led Marvel movie? I don't know. I don't know how it's any different. And to be honest, I don't want it to feel different. Kind of over the, like, first female blah, blah, blah. And, like, wow, maybe women can actually do the same things that dudes can do. Like, what a crazy concept. You know what I mean? It's like, I feel like the more we talk about it, the more we perpetuate the myth that, like, it's an impossible task. It's like, no, if it wasn't like that before, it's because it was wrong. That was just wrong. Now we're just doing what's natural. From what we saw today, it looks like you're like grabbing something at your neck. Is there something to that or did you just have like an itch? <laughs> <laughs> I just had an itch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's itchy. It's very, very itchy. Yeah, the costume's very, very itchy. I think, I think like you're totally right about like No, I, I, you know, it doesn't matter what I make. I feel really firmly that like art is made to be enjoyed and interpreted and you get what you need out of it. Like my favorite books I've read multiple times in my life and they mean something totally different to me every time I read them. Art isn't made to be processed and labeled and like organized in the way that we do it now. I even have a hard time with the idea of like genre and that we place value based off of like, well, it's really good for this kind of movie. It's like, huh, what does that even mean? I don't understand. Like it, it'll be what it is. And I think there's going to be a lot there for people to digest and feel. And hopefully it'll be the movie that you want to revisit again and again. And as life goes on, it'll have more to it. Like, I just want to make art that lasts. I want to make art that you grow with. That's all. Um, we heard that Kelly Sue DeConnick is consulting on the movie, which is really exciting. If yeah. You, I'm assuming talk to her. Uh, could you share some, maybe some advice or stories or just how she's helped you get into Carol a little bit, a little better? Gosh, like, I have to admit that, like, talking with her was, like, so surreal. Like, I kind of feel like I just blacked out. Um, <laughs> I felt really nervous because it's, you know, it's this thing that this woman that she created that I feel very certain she knows way better than I do. Um, so I just was so honored to receive her blessing and to see how excited she was. And, um, and that felt like a relief to me. Um, because, you know, she, she, she pushed this forward, you know, we wouldn't be here without her really. Um, and I'm so grateful for that character that she created. And now we're just kind of following the breadcrumb trail that she made, you know?
Can you talk to us about the relationship between um, Carol and Maria and how Monica might view Carol? And how what? What's Monica that's... might uh, view Carol. How Monica might view Carol. That, did you hear that question? I Is it okay to answer? Um, if she can talk about the relationship between Carol and Maria and how Monica might view Carol. I mean, you talk about Marie, I mean, that relationship with Marie as far as that, but I think we just stopped at that. Okay. okay. <laughs> We're all learning what we can talk about. Um, I think the Maria dynamic is really important in this movie. Um, she is, she's like the representation of love in this film. And it is something that I'm very proud of, that the love relationship, and it is a deep love relationship, is not by the same lustful definition that we usually attribute to movies of this size. Um, that it's more complex and also, I think, like more meaningful than most love relationships that I see in films like this. Um, and, and Maria as a character is an incredible badass in her own way. Um, and they are equals. And I think seeing two women that have a playful competitiveness while also like mutual respect and care and have gone through so much together. There's a lot of history and are just like best friends um, is something that I'm excited to see because uncomplicated sort of female friendships um, are sort of rare um, to see. And, um, I have a lot of them in my life and so to be able to bring that on screen with someone who, with LaShawn, who's just so crazy talented and smart and beautiful and wonderful and is doing her own part to make sure that there are things in the movie that are her own that she's creating is just awesome guys we time for one last question you, you were talking about how you're tired of like you know everyone talk about okay this is the first female movie or etc cetera, etc cetera. but then like this year we have black panther which was huge and the reaction like we all knew what the money would make you know but then there was this other side who was like oh it's gonna make this amount of money so are you excited or ready for the reaction that Captain Marvel is going to get? I'm not ready. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'm not ready. Yeah. Because I want to be, if it is something, then I want to be surprised and I don't want to have expectation because I'm not in it for that. Mm -hmm. I didn't make this movie for any of those things so that I could attach a numerical value to it. Not um, about, but just the inspiration that comes with it. Even that is, like, not up to me, you know? Like, you don't get to decide if you're an inspiration to people or not. Mm -hmm. And the idea of, like, uh, I've had since I've agreed to do this role, people say, like, oh, well, you'll be a role model, blah, blah, blah. I'm just going to do what feels true to me. And if people want to tag along, they can. And if they don't, they can bounce. And that's cool. Like, I'm not going to go out of my way to do things in order to be something to people. Um, all of my heroes were just unapologetically themselves. And they were flawed at times. And that's okay. And so for me, it's part of who Carol is, too. It's like, she's flawed. She's not perfect. Um, so in order for me to feel comfortable stepping into this position, I have to accept my humanness and like remind everybody that I'm a human and I'm an artist and I just want to make art and that's, that's really it.
And there you have it, our full interview with Brie Larson. Uh, you can read the full thing on SlashFilm.com. You can find all the articles we talked about on today's podcast on SlashFilm.com and linked in the show notes. Ben, if people want to find more of your work, where can they find you? You can find me writing at SlashFilm.com. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Ben Pears. Jacob, where can we find you? I'm on SlashFilm.com every single day. I'm on Twitter where I'm at Jacob S. Hall. You can find me at Slash Home on all social media. You can find this podcast, Slash Home Daily, published every weekday on iTunes, Google Play, Overcast, Spotify, all the popular podcast apps. Please feel free to send us your feedback, questions, comments, concerns to us at peter at Slash Home.com. And please go to our iTunes page. Write us a five-star review. You know, Write a couple sentences out. It means a lot. Spread the word. Uh, tell your friends. We'll see you tomorrow. <laughs>